Good evening. It is 7pm and you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, Mendocino County's Public and Community Radio. And on this evening's Ecology Hour, I will be your host, Hannah Bird. Well, it's that time of year when we start to see our beautiful oaks burdened with acorns and I always start to look forward to the changing of the colours of the leaves. I thought it was a great chance for us to spend some time with Cooperative Extension Forestry Advisor, Dr. Mike Jones on this evening's show. And we are going to take a trip around different sites at the University of California Hopland Research and Extension Center with Mike. And he's going to explain some of the forest types that we're seeing and also talk a little bit about some of the stresses and the challenges that our forests are facing. Now, before we get into our conversation with Mike, I wanted to just go back to a recording that we made last month with some of the volunteers that Mike had been working with on our site here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. Now, these young people were in the early stages of their academic careers um, and they were um, very happy to be volunteering with Mike and learning from him. And I thought it would be fun to start the show this evening by hearing what they learned from Mike and what they got a kick out of when they were with Mike in the field. We're then going to move on to our conversation with Mike and our visit to a number of different sites at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. So let's start, start off with our conversation with Amanda, Finn and Morgan, who were our young volunteers helping out at Hopland Rec. Well, what did you feel like you, you learned um, in the time that you've been here? Um, and maybe Amanda, could we start off with you? Is that to put you in the hot seat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I think most of the time that I've spent here, we've been doing the forest inventory project. And I definitely enjoyed that because I learned a lot more about like the native California landscape mm-hmm. and like all the different environments that we have. And I had no idea we had so many different types of oak trees, to be honest. Yeah, we've just been we've, like, pointing stuff out yeah. and like, oh, that's that. <laughs> yeah, and just learning all the different species. And I, it has been interesting seeing how, you know, the environment has changed through the fires mm-hmm. and how things are coming back and what isn't coming back well i really like learning from mike and his kind of expertise especially with the oak trees yeah and he is kind of like expertise with all the oak trees and recognizing them really quickly but also describing the patterns that he's seeing um and he was talking a little bit about um they're seeing less maturing oak trees and um, the problems that might create with mm-hmm. climate change and mm-hmm. more fires and frequency like that. Mm-hmm. So I definitely enjoyed him going into more depth about that. Um, and then again with forest inventory, we um, last week we got to core an oak tree, and that was mm-hmm. that was pretty interesting that was, watching yeah. that be pulled out. Oh, that sounds awesome! So and I definitely want to return to yeah. that too. I was, again. Yeah. That's what I was going to yeah. talk about. <laughs> so Morgan, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about what you found, and feel free if you well, want to bring us back to that. That was Finn's idea. Yeah, he one of my favorite things was he did that last no the week before last. Um, Finn wanted to core an oak tree, and Mike was like, all right, it's going to be, like, really hard, but, like, if you want to, because oak trees have that hard wood. And... Could you describe to us, from from the very beginning, as somebody who's not a forestry <laughs> expert at all, what on earth do you mean by okay. coring an oak well, tree? Uh, basically, taking a sample from, like, the inside layers, and you t- it's almost like you're pulling a stick out the very middle of the tree, and... Finn wanted to do it, and I didn't even know what you were talking about. I was like, you're going to poke a hole in a tree? <laughs> like, okay. Because um, it uses a screw. Right, yeah. Like, there. how, what is it called? You... It's a bore, I think it's called. Yeah. And it just cuts a little uh, eighth of an inch diameter piece of wood that you cut out of it. Yeah, and you, like, screw it into the tree. Mm-hmm. So you get it right the way through the middle of the tree, right? You so go as deep as you can, but you aim for the middle. Mm-hmm. But you have to do it really fast because the oak tree will expand and contract around There's the, the mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the yeah, well, and then you can get your um, actual screw stuck in the tree, so. Yeah. <laughs> so did you guys manage it? Uh, the first time was not successful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then 
Mike Mike did it a second time, and then he handed it back to Finn. He was like, "Okay, now you try again." And <laughs> so we got two samples, and they were so cool because you can see the rings within the samples. So, like, so we, just like we'd see the rings if we were looking at a cross section, right? Yeah. 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 So okay. we're like looking at a stick with like all these lines on it. Um, so we had maybe a stick that was only like a little sample. <laughs> that was like a foot long. Mm-hmm. And it um, had almost like 70, 70 rings, 70 years within that. So then we're looking at the tree and we're like, this has got to be like a 300 year old tree. Oh my goodness. Because we didn't even reach the center. And yeah. It was like, like a we're... four foot diameter tree. We mm-hmm. And he was pointing out how you can tell sometimes with drought and fire years, depending on how far apart the rings are mm-hmm. or if there's discoloration between them. And it was really it was so cool yeah like the the rings that were 70 years ago like it had even growth each year and it was actually quite a large amount of growth within the tree so you can tell that it was healthy and it was growing steadily and then like the last 15 years you could tell there were some rings that were so close together where the tree just didn't even grow that year didn't get enough water Um, and i'm interested was mike saying that that was a fairly common occurrence that we're seeing due to drought and other changes Mm -hmm. in climate trees are showing it just getting hotter and the droughts we've excuse me had in like the last 15 years like you can see it in the samples mm-hmm. um he said you could even see burn scars if you take a sample from the right spot that you can mm-hmm. see almost like a fire within Gosh. the bark because if we're talking about a tree that's 300 years old it's highly likely oh yeah <laughs> like yeah. we we were standing there on that hill and we were like Okay, so this tree is older than the United States of America. <laughs> yeah. like, our country has not even been established for as long yeah. as this tree's been around. Well, thanks so much to Morgan and Finn and Amanda just then. Um, that was great to hear the enthusiasm that Mike kind of sparked in them. And great opportunity for us to now move on to our conversation with Dr. Mike Jones out in the field here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. We started off in the chaparral with Mike showing us one of the fascinating species that we have on the site. We are taking the opportunity for this ecology hour to get out and about on the site at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre and consider some of the issues that Mike is dealing with, like what what is the state of our forests right now and what are the challenges and some of the things that are going on. And we took a stop at this um, up in the chaparral here, Mike. You want to explain a little bit about what we're seeing that we had to stop and take a look for? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're in a pretty cool spot at Hopland. Um, we're in like a small, like half acre stand of sergeant cypress occurring uh, in the chaparral. Ow. Higher up, excuse me, the yellow jackets bit me. <laughs> uh, higher up on the, uh, on the campus, you know, kind of near the top. And um, it's really cool. This is the only place on the, on the, where Sergeant Cypress occurs, and it was heavily impacted by the fire in 2018. But that's okay because Sergeant Cypress is serotonous, and so it actually is beneficial to have fire. Um, what we have here are a bunch of relatively shrubby trees. They're not, they're not like tiny, uh, but they they definitely stand out. You know, they're 10, 15 feet tall, some of them, and they definitely stand well above the chaparral, the shrubs and the skeletons left over from the burned over chaparral and the regeneration. Um, but what's really neat about these particular trees is they're, as I mentioned, they're strotness, and they have these tiny little cones that they uh, are really well fixed to the twigs and the branches. And um, what happens is when fire comes through, the trees aren't very tolerant of, of fire damage. They can't really tolerate a lot of heat. And so the, the mature tree above ground biomass is, is pretty easily killed. But what the heat does is triggers the release of the, the seeds from the cones. And because we have fire moving through here, and this is all chaparral vegetation, which is really well adapted to fire. We get a lot of the competition that where the seedlings would be, or the seeds would be landing and the seedlings establishing, we get it burned off. And so we get this removal of this dense shrubby layer. We get recycling of the nutrients back into the soil. And so that creates ideal conditions for the seed bank or whatever seed is falling in after the fire to establish. So we're looking out across this area where it burned pretty hot. All of their skeletons from the chaparral um, that berm, the trees are skeletons, but there's tons and tons of regeneration already. It looks really greened up and looks really good. But then all these spaces where it's relatively open and spaced out, we see tons of these sergeant cypress seedlings that are maybe, you know, between six and eight inches tall at this point. So they're a couple of years old. And they are just, it's carpeted in these open spots and they're doing really well. And so it's really awesome to see this regeneration. And I'm really excited to follow it in time to see how well it 
it competes with the regeneration of the sprouting vegetation. Um, we're in the midst of a severe drought, so how is that going to play into its ability to persist and compete? Um, climate change is another wild card in there that is driving drought, but it has other impacts, and so you know how is that going to influence these trees um, as they grow up? Mm-hmm. And um, so it's really neat to be here and and to follow this kind of this yeah. you know this ecological um, outcome after a wildfire and, and these are systems that need wildfires so this is good we, we like what we're seeing so that's one of the things i wanted to come yeah. back to you on um so you mentioned a couple of times the term serotonous and yeah. then you described a little bit that am i right in saying that that means that um the seeds need heat to could you explain it better than i'm clearly yeah <laughs> so it's it's the it's the plant itself uses fire uh, or heat as a mechanism to trigger reproduction and so really what it is is the cones are produced they're kind of sealed shut with resin i'm not a super well versed in serotonin it it comes in many different shapes and forms across species and plants and and trees but basically what happens is as i mentioned uh, sergeant cypress have really tight little tiny uh, cones that are closed and then some kind of heat production either from fire or maybe even hot dry day will will cause them to open up usually it's oftentimes it's um like they're held shut with resin like mm-hmm. some sap and so that mm-hmm. it melts the sap and they pop open mm-hmm. and then the seeds presumably drop into a um into an understory that's been burned over with you know not high severity high high severity right so the soil still has a lot of organic matter in it and you removed um you've removed uh, all the vegetation that's shading and comp- competing with the resources and so then the seeds land in this really receptive place where they can establish and yeah. you know get all the sunlight and all this available nutrients with limited competition and take off it's pretty amazing adaptation isn't it it absolutely to, is to, and it, so it wouldn't necessarily have to be fire but fire certainly is one of the things that's really going to help that process well i think with you it, even if you had a hot dry day that triggered seedling release if you're not removing the competition yeah. from the owner's store you're not going to get a good establishment yeah. so you absolutely do need fire somewhere in that process to to help um create the conditions for good good recruit good establishment and survival so it's something you're going to see as an adaptation in fire adapted habitats absolutely so serotony yeah. is very common across california landscapes yeah. Wow. Uh, because of how, I mean, right, most of our native species are fire adapted and a significant portion of not only just our flora, but our fauna require fire in some capacity for survival or to complete their life cycle. So serotony is a very common um, element in a lot of our native plants and animals. Awesome. So, Mike, I think this is a great way to actually open our conversation today because we are talking about one of the aspects of our forests and the challenges they have with um, wildfire, but also the benefits. I think it's time for us to move out of this location because <laughs> poor Mike is getting plagued by one yellow jacket here. Yeah. Obviously, we're in somebody's home right now. Um, but let's keep this conversation going as yeah. we um, look around the site today and great. see some of the other things that are, are impacting our forests. Yeah, great. Thanks. So I'm here with Dr. Mike Jones, who is... Um, Corporate Extension Advisor for Lake and Mendocino and Sonoma County is a forestry advisor. Um, Mike, we've moved into a slightly different forest type now. You want to tell us about the type that we're in? Yeah, so we're in another uh, really cool forest type, um, something that I really like, and this is a black oak madrone forest structure. So the dominant trees are black oak madrone. It's about an acre site, um, and it burned pretty pretty severely in, in the fire. Uh, and so what's interesting just kind of staying on the edge looking in is that we have a lot of really nice big black oak that were impacted pretty hard and are surprisingly still alive and producing foliage and have relatively kind of full canopies for the most part, but they are very stressed and struggling. But a lot of the madrone were killed. And so we have, you know, scattered big mature trees with some canopy most of them have relatively full canopies but then everything in the understory is madrone sprouts and they're probably most of them are already six feet if not 10 feet tall so it's you know madrone are really really fantastic resprouters after fire as are oaks but because most of these oaks survive they're not sprouting as much so i was just talking you know as we we pulled up i'm kind of curious to think about what is this stand going to look like long term into the future you have the mature oaks that are still alive some of them were killed those are respreading as well but all the regeneration is the madrone and so 
as these mature oaks die out and they will resprout, and some of them are resprouting already that were killed, um, what's their competitive advantage or if they have any advantage over the madrone or is, are we looking at potentially shifting to a more madrone dominated forest structure with more scattered oaks? And so that's just kind of an interesting um, fire effect in this particular stand. Yeah. And when you look around, I have some plots in here. There's not a lot of seedlings, oak seedlings. And so the regeneration of the oaks is really tied to the mature trees mm. and their basil sprouts, you know, kind of starting over, if you will. Can you explain what basil sprouts are? Yeah, so when oak trees, um, all oaks do this um, to different varying levels, but when an oak tree dies, um, the above ground biomass portion, for example, is killed in the fire. But if the fire doesn't really, really nuke or burn off the soil, the below ground biomass, the root structure all survives. And so the tree regenerates, it's a, called fire embracing. It's, it's kind of a, 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 a fire adapted species uh, evolutionary advantage to in a fire adapted system is one to tolerate fire. The second is to embrace it and then regenerate. And so the sprouts are the regenerative capacity of the tree. So as the top or above ground biomass is killed, new sprouts shoot up from the base, from the, from the resources that are stored in the roots. And so those eventually um, will become, you know, after a few hundred years, will become mature trees. So when we say, oh, that oak's dead, what, what we're typically saying is everything I'm seeing above ground looks dead. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that individual, the genetics of that are dead. plant are dead yeah. because it could well, and we're actually seeing, we're standing next to one black oak where I am seeing Resprouting. There's no leaves in the canopy, just some very dead-looking mm -hmm. trunks, and then I'm seeing resprouting at the base of it. Mm -hmm. And right next to it, I see one that has got canopy, but no resprouting. Mm -hmm. And so it's I, I, I'm I'm anthropomorphizing here terribly, but <laughs> that one's decided I don't need to resprout because I've, I'm alive still, and I'm going to have my absolutely. Leaves. But ultimately, what you're saying, we're also standing next to this big madrone with loads of resprouting and lots i mean overall we're seeing huge amounts of yeah. drone like carpeting the base here um so there's going to be some challenges for these oaks to compete with that and and you know a lot the madrone that we're seeing carpeting is also resprouting from madrone that were here before the fire so already before the fire there was a huge amount of madrone regeneration in the understory but there is still a, it was still a pretty much closed canopy system because all the mature oaks had full canopies and it was very much shading the understory and now that that's gone the madrones have a competitive advantage in regeneration so they're growing extremely fast and are going to be very competitive against any oak sprouts and also the mature trees which are trying to recover remember we're in a drought so they're stressed on top of the fire stress all these madrone sprouts are going to be stealing resources from these mature trees mm -hmm. so there certainly will be interesting long-term mm -hmm. ecological effects in these stands Mm. I'm hopeful that black oaks do well. I, they're very tolerant and persistent trees, as most oaks are. But um, it'll be—it's hard to see. It's yeah. there's so many wild cards right now happening that it, it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens here. It's also—it's. I feel like it's very easy to put a human time scale on trees. Yeah, I'm always yeah. trying to do that, right? And I'm looking at these black oaks and thinking, oh, you guys don't look like you're going to be able to manage this. But they—they're in it for the long run, right? Even the yeah. ones that are looking like, well, they've only got a little bit of canopy. But they're still photosynthesizing. They're still making it some. These these trees can persist in this condition for years, for decades. So they may be, they may be have foliage and they may look alive and physiologically they are, but they are still declining. These are old. This is an old mature stand. These are old trees, so they're already in that age where they're starting to senesce and die off. And uh, the madrone can resprout. I think at a pretty more vigorous rate than the oaks and so uh, we potentially could shift to more madrone dominated mm -hmm. and i will say that the reason that that's happening is through fire suppression through the exclusion of fire because if you have we have, on hopland we have another oak madrone forest down low by the main buildings and if you walk in the understory there's no it's open right it's a mature uh, canopy where there's big madrone and black oak mixed but there's no huge thickets of regeneration mm -hmm. like we see up here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, presumably it's because they, they probably burned that area more often historically mm -hmm. when it was managed as a ranch. Up here, I don't think they had as much fire. And so all this regeneration is, is really the result of removing fire from a system that needed mm -hmm. fire to maintain its structure. Mm -hmm. So this is a direct result of, of mm -hmm. fire suppression. So Mike, this brings us quite neatly onto a broader conversation outside of just this plot that we're looking at about 
how are our forests in Mendocino County and the areas you work in, how are they doing right now? And we hear a lot about wildfire. We also hear about fuels reduction. Yeah. Um, do you want to give us, I, you know, maybe it's okay with you to stay standing in the field and yeah. give us a bit of an overview of the much broader scale. We've gone down to the minute detail right yeah. now, but it would be good to hear the broad scale. In my opinion, I, I, I would argue that I don't think there are any healthy forests in California right now. And it's a mix of a lot of different things. It's it's historical land use practices. It's changes in land use um, uh, practices. Uh, it's uh, um, the expansion of the wild and urban interface, which all of that ties together and then ultimately leads to fire suppression. And so all of these factors that basically result in the removal of fire from a fire adapted ecosystem uh, leads to unhealthy conditions because the forests aren't being managed to the normal disturbances that they're, they're used to for mm -hmm. thousands, if not longer, right? Before mm -hmm. the Native Americans were here, there was natural lightning fire mm -hmm. and we had fire on a, a relatively uh, long fire returnable, but fire was here. Native Americans for th 10,000 years, if not more, were burning at more frequent um, intervals, which had a significantly massive influence on the structure of the forests that we see today. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you remove that all of a sudden and you don't allow any kind of other disturbances to occur or you have only negative disturbances that don't really help uh, uh, with long-term ecological sustainability and health, you create relatively unhealthy conditions. And so I, I argue that there isn't much of the forests left in all of California that are not in some kind of state of poor health. Mm -hmm. And the idea of wildland is also not a healthy forest. Just mm -hmm. because you remove people's influence from that forest, but you don't allow natural disturbance, doesn't mean it's healthy. It means that you're still removing the most important part mm -hmm. of that ecological health, and that's the disturbance factor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, how do we get back to healthy forests? I don't know. It's a very hard question, right? We have, we're in a drought, presumably it's driven by climate change. Climate change is this umbrella wild card that how do you, how do you manage long-term for something that you're not really sure what ultimately the impacts will be. Mm -hmm. But I think what we do is we do the best that we can. And we know that um, there's a lot of extra vegetation on the landscape as opposed to what is historically there. And so I think we, we manage competition to try to get the forest to more healthy, sustainable conditions where we can use tools like long-term uh, management with prescribed burning and other, other mm -hmm. types of uh, less invasive management options uh, like grazing or mm -hmm. limited thinning mm -hmm. to create healthy forest structure that is more sustainable and then maybe it can be persist with less and less intervention as time goes. Mm -hmm. But right now we're at a critical point because we got to really figure out what that means and how we approach that. Um, Right now, we're really focused on fire safety, so a lot of the emphasis is on understory thing, removing ladder fuels, removing mm -hmm. understory vegetation to reduce fire severity around structures and hopefully shaded fuel breaks and things like that on the landscape. But to me, that's a short-term, year-to-year approach to fire safety. That's not creating healthy, sustainable forest structure. Mm -hmm. If you think about what a fire would do, a naturally occurring wildfire, it's not just going to burn up and and kill the understory vegetation, it's gonna take out some big trees too. It's gonna to thin out the dominant canopy. And especially when you have really old decadent trees who have a lot of vulnerabilities and different structural defects that are receptive to fire. I'm gonna stop you just for a second yeah. there because I'm interested. I'm imagining this old tree, right? Yeah. And when you say structural defects, you, you've got like kind of holes in it where mm -hmm. a fire could get the kind of mm -hmm. handle on and maybe the bark isn't as thick in areas yeah. and it can just get through a bit more. And so that kind of tree, an old tree, because um, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about, oh, well, those big old trees, they wouldn't be affected by fire. But what you're saying is, no, some of those older ones, yes, absolutely. Embers would find places to mm -hmm. stick on them and mm -hmm. they, would, they would be maybe totally burned or partially burned. And, and that's a, important. It's an important part of the disturbance cycle, right? It's a way to call out the dead, dying, declining trees naturally. That's what fire, that's the role of fire. That's the role of fire, insects, and disease. That's the role of disturbance. It's to recycle nutrients, to cull out the dead, dying trees, to free up those nutrients, to help support the growth of the trees that are still healthy, but also the next cohort, the next generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So because we've removed fire, we have all these beautiful big trees that everybody loves, but a lot of them have defect in them, structural mm -hmm. kind of issues in them that either from historical fire or just because they're getting old, mm -hmm. it's very receptive to fire. So when we have fires come through, I think we see a lot more uh, mortality in the big dominant trees than we would historically but the point is too that we just can't leave the big trees mm -hmm. right because if we leave the big trees and remove all the understory 
the big trees are already drying because of age. They're going to be killed by fires that are going to occur no matter what we do. Mm -hmm. And if you don't develop the next cohort, what are you replacing those big trees with, mm -hmm. right? If you mm -hmm. remove all the regeneration that, let's face it, is very limited already, right? There's oak regeneration is abysmal right now. And, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of mechanisms, just like we talked about with forest health, driving that. So we got to figure out how to get more oak regeneration, but we also need to figure out how to replace the big trees that are dying. Because as you mentioned, mm -hmm. we exist at different timescales. We see the forest as being static because they exist in a much longer timescale than we do as humans. Mm -hmm. And so even though the trees look like they've been this way forever, mm -hmm. these are incredibly dynamic changing systems that we're not perceiving. Mm -hmm. But when fires come through or disturbances come through, we see that impact. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I think we really need to start thinking about this holistic landscape level management to forest health where understory thinning and removing fuels is critically important for fire safety, but we need long-term sustainable approaches, which includes thinning and removing some bigger trees, opening mm -hmm. up the canopy, Mm -hmm. uh, creating more structural diversity, heterogeneity in the forest structure, and planning for the future condition. Because if you remove all the understory, your big trees die, you lose the forest, right? You're converting to shrubland or to grassland. Yeah. Yeah. In the oak woodlands, this yeah. is a really important So we're actually talking about reduction in our forest. But what you're saying is also something that I think folks, it's hard to hear, because we have this kind of attitude to these big old trees, right, yeah. don't we? That they ha deserve a level of respect and that we should have them as, you know, something that you protect. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting to hear that we also need to support what actually would be a very natural mm -hmm. cycle and that those big trees would be kind of giving up their nutrients to enable the next cohort to come through the next those those I, seedlings those seedlings absolutely i mean there i i love big old oak trees uh, everybody loves i don't know who doesn't but i think you know we're learning a lot about the below ground communication and the how complex below ground uh, ecosystems are yeah. and if we agree that trees are communicating with each other I think we have to agree that a big tree that's declining and doesn't serve a function really might be receptive to fire and might be uh, uh, willing to die, mm -hmm. to anthropomorphize mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. to help its its offspring, mm -hmm. right? If a big tree is not no longer has good reproductive capacity, but it has lots of seedlings coming up around it or mm -hmm. trees that are younger that are, are of its genetics, you know, presumably that tree is like fitting a role of recycling those nutrients once it dies back into the system. So I think we have to kind of think about, you know, we love, that's a value we place on these trees, big, beautiful trees, but ecologically and their function in the forest mm. may be completely different than what we view mm. as aesthetics. So mm. I think we have to start thinking about that. Mm. And that's going to be really hard to get over because that's going to include um, harvesting trees. Mm. And it's a very expensive process. And I think there's a place in this conversation for, the economics behind that, having the opportunity to harvest trees to help invest into long-term management to kind of create these more sustainable si systems. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean we have to log and, and cut trees forever and ever, mm -hmm. but right, maybe now we do a little bit more heavy-handed approach to create the conditions that, that lead to more sustainable mm -hmm. forest structure mm -hmm. and, and health in the future. And as you say, in that period, what are aesthetics that are mm -hmm. maybe a little bit skewed anyway of what a healthy forest looks like? We're not going to see what we think. Yeah, is is what we you know what we equate as a healthy forest. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's also really important that we're talking about this that a lot of a lot of interest there's a lot of interest in conservation and restoring the forest to what they were before European mm. colonization and suppression of Native American management practices, and I agree that that's sometimes achievable, but I don't think that should be the approach that we take. Let's face it, we've done a heck of a lot of damage in the last hundred years. And to get back to the way things were is gonna be really tough, especially with climate change. And I think what we need to do is take what we have now and build it back better. We need to take what we have and create more resilient, healthy forest structure with what we know and what we think we can project mm -hmm. in the future. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. The time is 7.30 p.m. And this is a conversation with Cooperative Extension Forestry Advisor, Dr. Mike Jones, looking across the state of our forests. So thanks for guiding us through that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's complex. And one of the things I'm struck by is, you probably have the figures to support this, but I believe there's a lot of, certainly oak woodland that is privately owned in California. And I'm just, the, the kind of structural approach that you're talking about, I'm just kind of intrigued. How does a message like that, how does a system like that, an approach like that, 
get filtered out to all these many, many landowners so that they can buy into it. And, and I think the other thing I'm struck by is just the complexity of for every piece of land, you probably have a very, it's, it's a whole mosaic of things that you're looking at doing that's very doctored to that particular piece of land. Yeah. How do you set people up so that they feel prepared and they understand what they could be doing? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, right when I work with clientele, private landowners, even state landowners, we always get questions of how do I do this? What, what's the right way to do forest management? And, and our favorite answer, which is, I think, infinitely frustrating to everyone is it depends. At the end of the day, it really depends on what the goals and objectives of the landowners are. We're just trying to fold in this idea that I will support and help you manage your lands, your forests and natural resources in a way that, that is, that I think is aligns with your goals and objectives, but is in a sustainable approach, right? I just want to make sure that what you're doing creates sustainable, healthy forests in the future. And so we fold into that conversation, like, you know, we can achieve all the different goals and objectives you might have. It could be aesthetics, it could be recreation, it could be timber, and, and if you're interested, it could be um, ecological, biodiversity, forest health. And we fold that into the conversation and say, oh, we can do all of that. And let's think about the long-term health of the system and how we create those conditions that you want for 100 years out. Mm -hmm. And so the best way we do that is through proof of concept. We have to show people what works and what doesn't work. Um, depending on their goals and objectives, right? It's very fluid here. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just like, well, if you do it, you know, if you want to do that, here's an example of how that works really, really well. Or here what we know didn't work in that situation. Um, or, you know, we don't know. It's, it's. That's a, a hard answer to hear. It's a hard, yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to tell people. It's like you, right. You know, a hundred years ago when, when we first, Western Europeans just first got here and, um, you know, arguably they weren't malicious in their intent they were just doing what they thought was right and what they thought they needed to do and we're kind of in the same place it's not that we know 100 percent or absolutely that what we're doing is the right thing but we're just doing what we think is based on all the knowledge that we have all the science all of the history and all of our mm -hmm. past mistakes and all of the things that we're studying now we're trying to do what we think is best it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do but as long as we have the intention and we're trying to create healthy systems i think that's mm -hmm. the best approach mm -hmm. and and it's important to remember that there's no right or wrong way as i keep iterating mm -hmm. and no management is certainly an option but i think that no management is 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 probably the worst option because that's really what's gotten us to this point the mm -hmm. fire suppression and not managing the landscape is mm -hmm. that's that's no management and that's mm -hmm. where we've gotten to now it's mm -hmm. an experiment that we've tried Mm -hmm. and it's failed miserably mm -hmm. and so i think that somehow we need to to communicate that doing nothing doesn't work mm -hmm. like if you're not going to allow natural disturbance to come through and mm -hmm. uh, you need to yeah. do something yeah yeah so it's trying to, to actually doing nothing actually is doing something because it is stopping yeah, things, yeah right? that's true yeah that's true it is it is true so it's like this complex like yeah you can do nothing but mm -hmm. is it really the best for the mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. and so I, I i guess i struggle with that and it's because there are so many competing interests and ideas about how to do this um it's a hard message to convey mm -hmm. and um i guess like i said it's just kind of showing people what good mm -hmm. forest management looks like mm -hmm. and not just one model, but all of the different tools we have available and all the different ways people have implemented mm -hmm. them to show, uh, you know, kind of case studies of how, how that can work. So one of the great things about your role is that you actually do go out and give people this advice, right? Yeah. I'm wondering, so one thing I'll make sure that we add at the end of the show tonight, your contact information so people sure. can follow up with you, um, particularly if they have some um, woodland or forest that they are mm -hmm. managing on their land. Yeah. Um, I'm interested, do you have any kind of case studies, situations, you don't need to give us an address and a name, <laughs> but is there anybody you've worked with who you've had that kind of process of going through these conversations and, and now you feel like, yeah, now we're working in the right direction as, as, as right as we think we can be? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of the people that I've worked with have already had some some approach to management and it's really just kind of going there and be like wow you guys have been doing a really fantastic job keep doing it and they're just they just need the affirmation they just need the confirmation and like be told like actually what you're doing is in my opinion like awesome mm -hmm. let's keep going that way okay. oh by the way you've done all this fields reduction work and forest health improvement mm -hmm. let's add prescribed fire or some kind of mm -hmm. other tool of the model mm -hmm. to help you manage this in a more sustainable mm -hmm. economically viable method mm -hmm. um with 
more and more fires happening in the North Coast Sonoma area. Um, it's driving more and more interest in vegetation management, forest health, and, and post-fire restoration. And those are still conversations that we're having and really trying to emphasize the role and the importance of doing post-fire management of, of some type of pre-fire management, which is a very hard thing to encourage, um, you know, because it can be expensive and people aren't really open to that idea. So, um, yeah, I would say that we're more and more conversations and, and more and more people are, are getting invested in this conversation and trying new approaches. Um, but I will admit there's still a lot of hesitation to, mm -hmm. to, to doing some mm -hmm. landscape level forest management. And mm -hmm. uh, in our area, Mendocino County a little bit better than some Sonoma County, for example, there's a real lack of infrastructure and capacity. Yeah. So there's not a lot of resources that, that are available that we're, we really actually need to get this work done. I was I was interested both kind of financially as the support for people and would you what are, what other signposts would you give people right now of places that they might want to approach apart from yourself? Yeah, I mean the the NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, has their Environmental Quality Incentives Program, which is a cost share grant. Um, the Resource Conservation Districts (RCDs) have funding. Uh, Cal Fire has the California Forest Improvement Cost Share Program. So there are pots of funding and. You know, as a state government, they say they're more interested in pre-fire forest management and they are starting to put more money into that. So we're seeing more capacity. But really what's limiting right now, we're, we got lots of money coming in. But what's limiting is a professional right in California to practice forest management. You need to be a registered professional forester. So you need to work with a professional development management plan. Um, so there's a lack of qualified professionals. Um, there's a lack of infrastructure. The mm. people who have the skills and the equipment to actually do landscape level management mm. um, are still very much uh, limited, and mm. we're building that capacity and trying to, you know, encourage. If you're going to put money into funding to get work done, that we need support to build capacity at the same time, mm -hmm. and also working on the education. Right? It's it's really important that we have these conversations about forestry and what forestry means and, and how we, we fold that into this larger com conversation about fire and managing the land. And a good place to start is in schools to create those people who want to become foresters, mm -hmm. but also to have that conversation about what is forestry to you and what is it not. And that, you know, a lot of people still perceive forestry as just being logging mm -hmm. and it's much more complex discipline than that. And so I think we need to start with education to mm -hmm. tell people, if you're a forester, it's just not about timber. You can be a wildlife biologist who's a forester. You can be a soil uh, scientist and be a forester. Mm -hmm. You can be a love fish and be a forester, mm -hmm. right? There's all these disciplines that are really critical to mm -hmm. being, um, to being, uh, or, or to developing this comprehensive forest management mm -hmm. plan. And so we just need to kind of communicate that better to get people to buy into this whole idea of land managing the landscape, not just for timber, but to mm -hmm. prove healthy forests and healthy ecosystems. So Mike, um, our show last month interviewed some um, young volunteers that we had had um, helping out here on the site. Yeah. And they'd, you had actually very much inspired them. You've mm -hmm. been working with them for a few months um, and we'll come on to the kind of work that you were doing with them. But I was fascinated to hear the way they described. So these are folks who are probably in their first year at university. Um, and they, um, it's been a formative experience for them to have mega fires um, coming through their communities mm -hmm. when they're in middle school and high school. And they're making decisions about what they're gonna study mm -hmm. and what they want to focus on. And it was really interesting to hear them say, yes, you know those days when we walked out and the skies were like the apocalypse and I was worried about what was gonna to happen to my friends. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, what can we be doing? Mm -hmm. And how could I play a part in that? Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting to hear you describe that education and also great that you've been supporting those young people already. Mm -hmm. But I wonder how much we're gonna see that more. And this isn't necessarily a question for you, but just interesting to kind of put that out there. We have these young people in our communities who are growing up with these experiences and they are definitely going to shape the kind of things that they're gonna to want to pursue yeah yeah it's really important that we have conversations with them about wildfire and, and forest natural resource management because it's a scary thing but we need to frame it in a context that this is part of our ecosystem mm -hmm. right the all the animals and all the plants are adapted to fire mm 
but as humans and people who live in these landscapes we're not we're mm-hmm. absolutely not adapted to living in these environments mm-hmm. and that's again to harp on it is the fire suppression model where we mm-hmm. always assume that you could build wherever you want and mm-hmm. then there'll be a fire suppression resource show up to put out any fire that impacts mm-hmm. the community mm-hmm. we know that doesn't work that's mm-hmm. not sustainable so we need to really have a conversation about the role of fire in the ecosystem mm-hmm. that at the end of the day it is scary and it's traumatizing and bad things can happen and there is a bad fire but mm-hmm. that 90 percent of the time it's what we call good fire mm-hmm. that even though we have these huge fires a lot of it is doing good ecological mm-hmm. or having good ecological effects mm-hmm. on the landscape mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we need to really balance that like how do you prepare it how do you be respectful of fire but how do you recognize its importance and value and embrace the idea of mm-hmm. having fire in in the environment mm-hmm. and that starts with the experience but also starts before the experience and teaching people about how fire fits into the ecosystem and how we can prepare for and better manage uh, an ecosystem where fire is an important plays an important role is an important disturbance and how we can have a role in kind of shaping our communities and how we respond to fire but how we can better prepare and build a, a, a more resilient and healthy forest and natural resource ecosystem that will um, be more prepared for these mm-hmm. these wildfires that we're experiencing mm-hmm. so that's the group that I want to target the kids mm-hmm. who are in school those were mm-hmm. those students were all they're all specialized in ag they're all mm-hmm. focused on ag and, and stuff, but mm-hmm. they really, um, we had a good conversation about natural resource management and forestry management. And hopefully that's, it kind of opens their minds up to thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, the, working in those systems as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's move on to our next location. Sure. Um, I know we have plenty more to talk about. <laughs> okay. So we have stopped at another part of the site of the Hopland Research and Extension Center. I'm still here with Dr. Mike Jones. Um, and Mike, we're seeing an, another slightly different forest type here. What are we seeing? Yeah, I guess in my mind, this is like more of a traditional oak woodland structure that we all think about. There's a uh, big uh, live oak. These are interior live oak. There's some black oak around the edge of a riparian corridor. So across from the road, there's a bunch of bay down in a draw, some black oak. And then the other side of the road, there's all these you know big live oak and, and um, a drone in here. But the reason I want to stop here is, first of all, this was a high severity spot in the fire as we're looking around, I would say probably 75% of the trees in this like little quarter acre are, are dead. They have, have no um, re-sprouting or, or canopy foliage. And even a lot of them don't have basil sprouts. So they were outright killed. Um, and so we're going to talk about in context, another part that's really interesting about this site and that's Doug fir encroachment. So, um, it's really important that we talk about this because people like to give Doug fir a bad name. They like to blame the fires on Doug fir and they like to say that it's because the fir here that the fires are worse. And, and this is absolutely not true. I don't want, there's no, absolutely no reason to blame one species over another for fire behavior. Fire behavior is what it is based on the types of fuels, topography, all these different complex issues. But you can't blame it on the fir over the oaks. What you can blame it on is the amount of biomass, the amount of vegetation in an area, right? It's not just that they're here, it's because they've added a significant amount to the biomass, and so the fire behavior is going to be very much different when it hits these encroachment stands. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it burned pretty hot in here, but these dug fir aren't anywhere near where some of the bigger dead trees are. They're in their kind of their own little spot. And the trees that are adjacent to this little patch of encroachment are still alive. So that's just, to me, right there, right away, is no, that dug fir encroachment doesn't necessarily kill the trees during fire events. So, sorry, I always just want to try and um, check that I'm understanding right. Because I guess when we think of dog fur, we think about a fuel which burns easily and hot. I, is, is it a fuel which seems like it's a different it is kind a fuel. of fuel all vegetation is fuel and it's not even a different type of fuel it's the same kind of fuel as oaks it's wood under the right conditions it's all going to burn mm. right gotcha. you, you know the, mm-hmm. the structure of firs is very much different compared to mature oaks so certainly fire behavior in a small encroaching understory fir is going to be very different than a mature oak that has its canopy well lifted off with thick bark Whereas these small fir have lots of fine branches, lots of fine needles, and so a fire behavior is going to be very different mm. in those trees. But it's not because it's a fir, it's because of the structure of the vegetation. If you had a small oak seedling or sapling that was in the same place that had lots of small branches near the ground with lots of small leaves, it's going to burn yeah. the same way. Yeah. And people say, well, because they're pitchy and they're full of chemicals. Yeah, certainly when you burn fir or pine or some kind of conifer in your fireplace, it's really pitchy and stuff. And that certainly has an influence. But when we're talking about fire behavior and wildland fire, 
just struggle with the idea of blaming those trees because it mm. creates really uh it encourages poor management right mm. it encourages people to be resistant to putting doug fir back in the landscape when it absolutely belongs to right doug fir is a native species and again the only reason why we have doug fir encroachment is because we screwed up the systems through fire suppression so this is natural succession this is what happens when you remove fire is the fir the conifers expand their range because there's nothing to kill the regeneration so this is just this is a natural successional process that occurs in the absence of fire if you happen to like doug fir and you're cool with it encroaching your oak woodlands there's nothing wrong with that if you don't then we need to manage it but we can't blame it for why the fire is the way they are mm -hmm. it's not the fire's fault it's not the fur's fault it's our fault for essentially messing things up in the first place it's interesting it's just the term encroachment yeah. sounds to me like something that's not supposed to be here sneaking on it right? is from an oak conservation or oak oak woodland management perspective it certainly is encroachment and it's not just the doug fir i see madrone acting as an encroaching species and competing aggressively with oaks you see other types of conifer species or even hardwood species that because the absence of fire has allowed this prolific regeneration and establishment to occur it's competing with what would be the mature already established structure that was maintained through through frequent mm -hmm. fire events mm -hmm. So, um, right, I just want to get that out there because I, I just don't like the way people characterize fur. Yeah. It's just not appropriate. It's just absolutely not appropriate to treat yeah. fur like that. They're a native species. They belong here. Yeah. We certainly do want to be more thoughtful about where we are replanting it or where we're really trying to protect it and maintain it on the landscape. But it's not its fault. We don't it, need to get rid yeah, of them all. We don't need to get and rid of them all. And in fact, they do have an important part to play. And the other, so, right, and the other cool thing about the stand is while there is a pretty you know a pretty substantial amount of mature oak mortality in this particular site there's still a lot of really healthy oaks and there's a lot of regeneration on most of the trees um but all the fur are now dead mm -hmm. so that is what fire does mm -hmm. if we had a, a a prescribed burn or a low severity fire come through here most of our oaks would have been fine and all of our fur would have been dead conifers don't resprout so we've essentially removed the encroachment issue from the stand mm -hmm. which gives our hardwoods the competitive advantage to regenerate mm -hmm. and we see that it's not necessarily all oaks, but I see lots of little seedlings throughout the mm -hmm. grass in these stands where the where the conifers were of madrone and toyon and some oak in here. So um, you certainly see the stand responding to the removal of the fur from the stand. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, to think. So they are a, a native species, um, but their fire adaptation is not to resprout, and it's not. I, I guess their adaptation is just to be good at moving into an area. In the absence of disturbance yeah yeah and i will i want to point out too here is that these tree a lot of these mature trees are dead but this was not a canopy or a crowning fire in this particular area it yeah. was so hot that it cooked a cambium at the base it killed the really critical tissues around the bases because you look at the tops of the trees they still have all their fine twig structure mm -hmm. and you see the charring from the flames on the bark it goes pretty high but all the way to the top and when i look at these fur these thickets of fur you see they still have all the fine twig structure. They still have all the architecture of the tree. The only thing that's dropped is the needles because the needles have been killed and they fell off. So it's not that the fur, the fire hit the fur and then the, the fire raced up and crowned out and then burned down all the trees through a huge canopy fire. It's that they were just here. They got girdled just like the big oaks said. They died. The fire didn't even crown or canopy out in the small fur. It was just that this was a really hot understory burn. Mm -hmm that got a lot of momentum from the amount of vegetation in here mm -hmm. that increased mm -hmm. the heat mm -hmm. and so you just have very localized fire behavior mm -hmm. that is regardless of what kind of composition of plants is here it's going to be destructive yeah. no matter what really interesting and i have to say not the story that i thought <laughs> either you put me right and i appreciate that yeah um so mike i know we only have a short time to we've we've had some i mean hey I, we could do a whole year with just having interviews yeah. with you um but one thing I wanted to touch on was the work that you have been doing. You know, we had this great interviews with the young people who you'd mm -hmm. been going out and working with. And something that you'd worked on with them was um, a forest inventory. And they explained it a little bit in our last Ecology Hour, but I'd love to get... To me, it sounded like some kind of tool that you can do to figure out the health of our forests. Am I right? Yeah, it, it serves lots of different purposes. It's an amazing tool. If you are familiar with the Forest Service, they have their uh, forest inventory analysis FIA data. And basically what they've done is establish a series of very rigorous plots across all of the all of the United States, including Alaska and Canada, uh, Alaska, Alaska and Hawaii. Canada has their own forest inventory. Um, 
And basically what they do is every year, every depending on funding, it's, it's really expensive to do this, every few years they go through and reassess the plots that they've established. And what they've done is by initially establishing the plots, you um, first determine what your forests are. What is the structure and composition of forests? Where are the species present? What are their sizes? What's the composition and, and the densities that they occur at? Um, what's the different communities that occur around them? So the understory shrubs, the different mix of the trees. And so it gives you this baseline understanding of what your forest structure actually is. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that across the entire United States, you can actually map out like where different habitats, habitat types occur. Mm -hmm. And then by reevaluating them in time, you can look for change in condition. And so mm -hmm. it's this really critically valuable tool for understanding how our forests are changing. And mm -hmm. so here at Hopland, the idea was, it would have been fantastic if we'd done this before the fires, but we're getting it done now. So the idea is to better understand what the forest structure is at Hopland. It's it's very diverse here, right? We, we have oak woodlands, we have chaparral with serpentine structure and some um, uh, sergeant cypress. We have madrone black oak forest. We have duck fir forest. We had plantations. So there's all this heterogeneity here and we don't really know like what that looks like. What is the actual mm -hmm. structure? What are the size of the trees? What's their distribution? How much occurs? Um, and so the idea is to collect data in all those different areas to better understand what the forest structure looks like and then follow that data in time and recollect that data to look for changes. Mm. And so how, how are they recovering after the fire? Does a new fire happen? What happens? Is there a mortality? Is everything fine? We can track all that. Mm. And so it's a really, really cool tool to kind of, um, you know, get a better sense of your, your, your ecological structure and health and mm. monitor it through time. I was going to say, it's good to get the snapshot right now, but what's really important is that you can, yeah. and then you see the change as well. Yeah, a snapshot's mm. really powerful, but it doesn't tell you much. It just mm. kind of says, here's what's happening right mm. now. But mm -hmm. that, that it's really that, that temporal component that mm. tells you a lot about mm -hmm. your forest. So, um, of course, we're not going to do this justice in um, the short bit of time. I think we probably have another five or so minutes. But the thing we haven't talked about, which is a major deal for all the forests, I know you've touched on it, is drought. Yeah. And we're um, experiencing the worst drought that I have experienced in the time I've been living in, in the US. Um, how does that affect our, our forests? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, um, right, I, you know, probably the worst drought we ever had was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. I know the 2014-15 drought was comparable, if not worse than what we're experiencing right now. All the weather forecasts say we're in store for another year of what we're experiencing currently. Um, our forests are are incredibly well adapted to this Mediterranean climate. Our oaks are just incredibly well adapted to drought conditions, so these dry hot conditions. But there's a limitation to all these. And even our redwoods and all of our other species have an ability to tolerate droughts to some extent. Um, but when you have the prolonged and really extensive drought conditions that we're experiencing now it pushes everything to a limit typically what you see is the conifers going out first they're just mm. not as well adapted to the um, water stress as the hardwoods are mm. and so typically when we have these drought conditions you see lots of issues in conifers so we're seeing lots of dug fir i'm sure everybody's mm. seen this dug fir issues western uh, pine beetles ripping through ponderosa pine because they're all drought stressed right now um, the redwoods are good because they're kind of insulated, but if you have ornamental redwood, offsite redwood and cypress and all these trees, they're really struggling right now because mm. they're just so hot and dry in these inland in, in environments. Mm. Um, and you know drought's really bad when your hardwoods start to get hit. And so we've seen a lot of, or I've been starting to pick up a lot of uh, health issues in the hardwoods, particular um, even at Hopland where I first noticed it is uh, Western oak bark beetle, which is the native bark beetle. It likes stressed trees. It does really well in drought conditions but it's vectoring a pathogen called foamy bark canker. And so we're seeing mortality in our oaks during drought, which is unusual, right? Usually mm -hmm. our oaks kind of just, like the blue oaks, for example, just drop leaves and go dormant and be like, hold on, I'll just mm -hmm. wait till it gets better. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time our live oaks and um, some of our deciduous oaks just kind of weather it. They just kind of mm -hmm. bear through it and hope for good, good conditions in the, in the rainy season. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing mortality in those trees right now. Mm -hmm. So because they're kind of their defenses are weakened through the drought which making them much more yeah. susceptible to whatever else there might be whether yep. it's some kind of pest or some kind of disease yep. and then it just might not make it through yep yeah they're just struggling they're having a hard time getting mm -hmm. enough water there's lots of competition it goes back to having dense vegetation on the landscape there's a lot of competition mm -hmm. for limited water resources water tables are lower or different you know uh, hi uh hydrothermic 
hydrothermic, but mm -hmm. hydrological mm -hmm. um, uh, conditions in the subsoil structure is different than what they're used to traditionally. So mm -hmm. maybe they're having access getting or trouble getting access to water, mm -hmm. but it's, it's not good. It's not good that we're, I started picking up signs of drought stress in February and we're coming through this season. It's pretty hot and dry. And so we're just kind of mm -hmm. continuing to see this. And if we don't get good recovery of moisture in the, in the rainy season, it, just going to be prolonged so and did i hear you say that what we're projecting is that it could be another year of all every all as far as i know i'm not in, by no means a climatologist or adverse in this language but from all the re, the research that i've seen and all of the language that's been coming out of these uh models it suggests that we're we're, we're not getting out of the drought anytime soon mm -hmm. so uh it'll be interesting to see what happens and most importantly for our fire impacted ecosystems, it's critical that they have water to recover, right? Mm -hmm. They've had significant impact. And so the drought is certainly gonna have a huge impact on how well our systems recover after fire. So it's just kind of bring this together a little bit. One of the things that you started off talking about was the management that we need to do, structural level management that we need to do to, to bring back what you feel, we have no healthy forests. You know, yeah. It's just not something that's here. Yeah. And that is really required, even if we're looking from a point of view of climate change and perhaps future drought, because you want trees that can be as healthy as possible mm -hmm. to be able to withstand. And what we have currently is stands that are going to be struggling anyway, right? Yeah. There. Yeah. I think that, you know, good forest management, good stewardship can alleviate a lot of the stress that's created by drought and by climate change and mm -hmm. by fire. Mm -hmm. um, thinning out the vegetation, managing for the structural diversity, the habitat heterogeneity, the multiple cohorts, so you want young and old trees, managing for all of this, creating these conditions can create more resilient forests mm -hmm. that can you know, persist in this changing environment. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Mike, I want to make it, I, I know from having hung out with you, how, what a passion you have for our forests. And um, I think sometimes, I, and I feel it from you as well, that sometimes the messages you have to give right now, um, people feel like, oh, you don't care about the old, the big old trees like we talked about. And, but I know that you have a passion for this whole system. So just to finish off today, can you tell me, do you have a, do you have a favorite species what tell me something that thoroughly excites you about yeah. our woodlands yeah um i i mean i i love these ecosystems i love the forest i i've been doing research on valley oak and another depressing story we have a new invasive ambrosia beetle that's killing valley oak in, in napa valley and um, they're just really incredible trees um a lot of their habitat's been lost through development through agriculture there are fastest growing oak trees. Mm -hmm. They can put on over an inch of growth a year in ideal habitat types. There are biggest growing oak trees. And so they're just pretty spectacular trees. Mm -hmm. I have a I huge oak tattoo say. in my arm. It's a valley oak. Mike has a they fantastic have, tattoo. Yeah, yeah. They, they are just crazy trees. They mm -hmm. have awesome architecture and they're just really impressive trees. And so I'm, I'm a little worried about them. They're one of the few species that has really fantastic regeneration. Everywhere you go, there's valley oak. There's tons of seedlings and saplings. Um, but there's not very many big trees left or very much habitat left. So mm -hmm. it's very concerning mm -hmm. um, that we have a new invasive species that could potentially impact them. But mm -hmm. um, our oak woodlands are, are pretty spectacular. The oaks are an old species. They occur across a lot of the world, but I think that our Mediterranean oaks are particularly special and, mm -hmm. and I would hate to see, um, I would hate to see them lost or impacted mm -hmm. by, by, you know, mm -hmm. the things that we've done to the forest and the changing climate. So mm -hmm. I'm passionate about, you know, we all love the oak woodlands, but it's all, it's about balance. It's about give and take. It's about balance, about bringing back disturbance and those sustainable practices of management and having more diverse landscapes. So awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for the work that you do, because I think you're really kind of standing up for them <laughs> and making some changes. Thank there. you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Ecology Hour this evening. We are looking forward to seeing you back again next week. Please remember that if you have any comments about the programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email, hbird 
H-B-I-R-D at U-C-A-N-R dot E-D-U. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.